We're in a series that we're calling Blessed, and we're looking at the Beatitudes, these incredibly uh, profound statements from Jesus, which are impossible to live out without his help. <laughs> you know, that's just the reality. If you try to try to make something out of them, uh, you know, without God in your life and working through your life, you're going to be frustrated uh, because they just so go against contemporary culture and everything that it values. And so we're looking at these really bold statements, and we're at statement number seven. We're, you know, we're, we're looking at blessed are the peacemakers. And so if you will, open uh, your Bibles, if you brought them, or, or, or your um, iPhone app um, to Matthew chapter 5 to the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read these uh, because I've said, stated before that uh, two things just briefly, and one of them is, is that there really are two parts to the Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes are really about the vertical relationship with God, and, and then the, the last four are about the horizontal relationships and, and how we are involved in relationships with each other. But they are progressive. They are progressive in the sense that they, want, they build upon one another, and so I always want to read them. And so we're going to get to number seven, but we're going to read the, the, the other six in front of it so you have the sense of the progression um, as we go. So starting with verse three of chapter five, Matthew's gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. So how do you define what war is? Historians generally agree that war is an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives. It may be a civil conflict within a nation or it may be conflict between nations, or it may be some other kind of global battle like we're going through right now with terrorism. But any, any active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives fits the definition, according to historians, of war. The New York Times published recently an interesting article by a colonist named Chris Hedges. You may be familiar with him. It's called, What Every Person Should Know About War. Since the beginning of recorded history, going back 3,421 years to the first documents that we have, there have only been 268 years without a war. That means humans have been fighting wars 92% of the time. The scarcity of peace has prompted one cultural commentator to suggest that peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. (laughs) Since the time of Christ. Since the time of Christ, we have averaged 7.3 wars per year on this planet. So since the coming of the Prince of Peace, that's 14,716 wars. 
And all of the historians agree that the 20th century, along with the beginning of this century, has been the bloodiest period in all of the history of the world. The bloodiest. Since 1900, 264 wars, over 75 million, 824,000 deaths, including civilian casualties. 3.5 million additional deaths from one-sided violence, such as genocide. And these are the most conservative estimates that we have. I mean, I only use the most conservative figures because there are some historians who say that we've killed 160 million people in the last 100 years on this planet. Now, I say those things because I know that you and I watch the news every evening with an interest in what's going on globally because our world is on fire. Constantly at war. Boy, if you're a parent raising kids right now, you have to be interested in what's going on globally because we always seem to be on the edge of some violent conflict, do we not? Fortunately, the great majority of us in this room have never seen an armed conflict, have we? But we're all very well acquainted with the other kinds of war and conflict. That between spouses, even when it's only a war of words. Or between in-laws or siblings. Or that hard-to-get-along-with-neighbor. You know, Dev and I have really reached out and tried to get to know neighbors. And we have some neighbors in our neighborhood that don't speak to each other. Yeah, it's everywhere. The hard-to-get-along-with-boss or co-workers. The bullying and the conflicts that come up with schoolmates. Conflicts and misunderstandings with friends. Those that we thought were close to us. We all, we all live with conflict, do we not? It seems to be a constant of our lives. And yet Jesus teaches us that life inside the kingdom is meant to be different. Somehow it can be different with him. Blessed, happy are the peacemakers. Not peaceful. Not peacekeepers. And certainly not peace wanters, because is there anybody in this room that doesn't want peace? Jesus says, happy are those who work hard toward forging peace. So I want to do really briefly four things this morning. I want to talk, first of all, first of all about a scriptural understanding of peace. What does the Bible, how does scripture really explain peace? What is it that we're working toward? What's the goal? For us. Then talk about the scope of biblical peacemaking. Then the skill set that's needed for that. And then last of all, the sacrifice that's involved. So let's talk about defining peace. To make peace, we've got to have an idea of what that is. It's more than the absence of conflict, isn't it? Whether that's on some large scale, an international kind of a relational front or or just the mundane uh, day of our life kind of conflict what is what is peace 
The biblical view of peace is the is more than the absence of conflict. That's important. But it's also the presence of human flourishing. It's not just that we end the fight, but somehow we find a way to help people to flourish. You see, in the biblical view, the New Testament, Greek, you know, the original language, which we go to sometimes, the word irene, it mirrors, it seems to, to reflect the Old Testament concept, the old meaning, the Hebrew word, which you recognize, shalom. It's used as a greeting, but it's a, it's a rich, multidimensional word. It incorporates this idea, shalom, peace, means harmony, and, and it means beauty and unity and virtue and safety and security and justice and wholeness and completeness, not just the lack of hostility. That's certainly a big part of it. And all of us would welcome the end of hostility in our world or in our lives. But it still means shalom is harmony and beauty and virtue and unity and safety. That's God's vision for us is shalom. You know, every year when we have the Guatemala team, I always wonder how I'm going to somehow make connection with whether a sermon series text I'm in. Right? And so I, I, and I went back to do a fresh look at the word shalom uh, in, you know, in the word study books. And one of the eminent scholars that I first um, read this week said the closest synonym to shalom, the Hebrew meaning of shalom comes not from an English word, but from a word used by the Kichi Indians of Guatemala. So immediately, I kind of honed in. <laughs> hey, there's my connection. The Kichi Indians have a word. Well, it's actually a kind of a long word for peace. Tuk tukil usil al. Tuk tukil usil al. Tuk tukil usil al. Peace. That's their word. But to the Kichi Indians, the term conveys conveys the idea of quiet goodness. But here's the unusual thing. It's not passive at all. To the Kichi, quiet goodness is a very active and a very aggressive word. And this scholar said, there's no other language that says it better than the Kichi about shalom. It's not inactive. It's not passive. It's very it's very aggressive. It's very intentional in its quiet goodness, if you will. I love that. So don't be... It, it, or it, it means it's the, it conveys the idea that we're to be overwhelmed and taken over by a sense of quiet goodness. And to reflect that. And to propagate that in the world. Actively. Even aggressively. 
We don't just stop the fighting, but we start the flourishing, if you will. I love the fact that we, we sang that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Because that conveys the idea as well. So what does it mean? Okay, just hold in your mind. It's, it's not just about, about to ending the, the fighting. But it's also about somehow making things flourish in their place. So what's the scope for the peacemaker? Well, Scripture talks about three areas. There is, there is reconciliation that is needed nation to nation, if you will. Now, most of us are not <clears throat> going to be involved in that kind of diplomatic mission, are we? Though I sometimes think the presence of faith and practice for over 20 years in Guatemala has been a peace mission in a very real sense. Don't you agree? That presence has built trust. And relationship where people can flourish. Though many of us may not be involved in something that is nation to nation. I'm reminded of the story of a little boy named Heinz. Who grew up in Firth in Bavaria. He was an Orthodox Jewish kid. But he was confronted daily with anti-Semitism. Like he was called every name in the book. Every day. Every racial slur, every filthy name you can think of. He was physically threatened constantly by a growing number of of Nazi youth involved in that movement in Bavaria. He became a very smart negotiator, getting he and his friends out of some really tight spots by calmly using words. calmly handling their hate-filled attacks and learned how to avoid confrontation when he could. His Jewish family was forced to to flee Germany in 1938. You don't remember him as Heinz. You remember him as Henry Kissinger. In his biography, Kissinger says, the most important lessons that he learned were learned as a little boy growing up on the mean streets of Firth. So here's the deal. Maybe you won't be a diplomat that heals the breaches between nations, but guess where it'll start if you do? In the trenches, where you live right now. That's where it started for Heinz. So you can get involved in the work of peace Making, if you will, and just see where God takes it. I'm not sure Henry Kissinger ever thought he would end up in the place that he ended up making peace between nations. So there's a need in that area of relationship, nation to nation. But then there's, there's that thing about person to person. And that's where we encounter it most often, do we not? The need to see people's relationships with each other reconciled. But don't overlook the third. And that is, Scripture clearly indicates that we are to be involved in peacemaking, reconciling people to God as well. Usually that's where it starts. Because that's what changes the heart. 
So I would suggest to you that that's the place that you would start, is finding that peace in your own heart this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 following. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his very flesh. He goes on to say, Paul writes, He created in himself one new man resulting in peace. So that's the place to start. What I find is there's no way that you and I are going to be able to help others make peace if we are not at peace ourselves and within ourselves. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. As you know, C.S. Lewis was a a super educated and very outspoken British atheist. And in his little book about his own conversion, Surprised by Joy, he writes that he heard a not audible but a very distinct voice one night from God that simply said, C.S., put down your gun and we'll talk. And that was the beginning for C.S. Lewis of making peace. But he had to put down his gun first. And some of us may have walked in the room with a gun. Let's just be honest. Is it any wonder? We're still wanting peace. The first place you have to start is within here. Letting God do what only he can do in here. So that's the scope. What about the skills needed? Okay, I've got time really just to, I want to run just one passage of Scripture by you from James chapter 3. Todd, if you can go there with me. James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. I want you to listen real closely to what James has to say. Now in verse 18, at the end of the paragraph, James says this, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And it's exactly the same word as in the Matthew text in Matthew 5, peacemakers. The peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And so the metaphor that we're given is what? It's farming. All right, so, 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 so how, do you make, how do you become a peacemaker? You learn how to farm. You're going to have to sow seeds of peace. You're going to have to sow the seeds of peace. You don't know where they're going to bloom. A farmer goes out, right? And, and, and sometimes he has to cultivate the soil. He may have to cultivate a relationship. He may have to build some trust with the soil. But, but bottom line is the idea is that you're going to sow seeds of peace into that soil. And you're going to do everything you, to water that soil and continue to watch over that. But you're not in control, Right? But you can prepare for harvest. So that's the metaphor you're given. But I, I love this whole paragraph in James because I think, I think James basically, I, I think he fills your seed bag right here. Here's, here's, that's what I think he does. Okay, you ready? So let's look at the seed bag. Who is wise and understanding, verse 13, among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So, so there's, this is very similar to what Jesus says about you've got to get the beam out of your own eye before you can help anybody else. If you're harboring any bitterness, uh, any envy, any selfish ambition. Verse 15, such wisdom. What he just described, selfish ambition or bitter envy. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We know where it comes from, from the pit of. Okay. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Verse 17, but... The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. Beatitude number six, right? Pure in heart. Is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, and it's the word for meek, full of mercy. Right? And good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So there's your seed bag. Right? It's not a metho- it's not methodological, it's it's not a technique. But it's, it's the way in which you go in relationship and relating to those places where not only where you are experience, experiencing conflict with someone else, where that breach needs to be healed or, or God has called you to come and somehow to be a bridge builder between persons or groups that you can only go with verse 17, with wisdom that comes from heaven, you know, relying on God's wisdom and, and submission to Him, which is pure and peace-loving and considerate and submission, submissive and full of mercy or forgiveness with good fruit, with fruits of, of, of kindness, impartial and, and, and sincere. That's your seed bag. And I would encourage you to make a note, James chapter 3. There's another chapter I would, I would steer you toward. Don't have time to get into it today because of, of the lack of time. But Romans chapter 12 is an awesome chapter in that, gar, in, the, in that regard. Because in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, Paul says, If possible, if in any way possible on your part, live at peace with everyone. And when you read the context around that verse... Before and after, you get a real clear picture of what the seed bag looks like that we are to be planting in people's lives. So, you can control the harvest, right? You're going to find that there's different kinds of soil. Jesus talked about that. But if you're going to be a peacemaker, I suggest you begin with prayer and then you begin, you start planting seeds and then you prepare for harvest. Because, it, because the farmer has to do what? James talks about it in his letter. The farmer has to trust God, doesn't he? Because he relinquishes control. 
but he does what he's called to do in, in obedience. He does what he's called to do to be a peacemaker by sowing seeds of peace. And there's always a sacrifice involved. There will always be a cost. You have to consider what it costs Jesus. A.T. Robertson, in his word pictures of the New Testament, says the perfect peacemaker is the Son of God. The one who establishes through his cross our peace, who makes the sacrifice for our peace. Thus, Robertson says, those of us who make peace shall be like our elder brother. And little wonder that we should also be called sons of God. It's because peacemaking comes with a sacrifice. With a sacrifice. Okay. So let's be aggressively intentional about our quiet goodness out there. Tuktakil Uselal. Let's be makers of peace. Makers of shalom. Let's step in to the fight so that we can end the fight. But let's stay in until people flourish so that faith can grow. Trust and obey.